Hi, and welcome to episode 45 of The Game Pit. My name's Sean, and this is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. Hello, welcome to The Game Pit. It is Ronan here. In our Picking Over the Bones episodes, we take a look at four games, dissect them, hack apart their carcass, and let you know our thoughts, feelings, and wonderful stories with regards to them. This episode i am going to be introducing elysium and space hulk death angel sean what have you got for us? well ronan i've got the xeno shift onslaught and harbor wonderful would you like to tell everyone where we can be found we can be found on 2d6.org for visual audio and written content we are also very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, and you can visit the Dice Tower and the Dice Tower Network for podcasting of the highest caliber. first game we're going to talk about is a very new release from Cool Mini or Not, it's Xenoshift Onslaught. It's designed by Michael Schinnell, who's also done Rum and Bones and Wrath of Kings, which are both coming out from Cool Mini or Not this year, and Karen Philosophers, who this is her first game, or his first game. Player numbers are 1 to 4. It plays in 45 minutes. I think we're going to question that somewhat as we go through our review. And what is it? It is a thematic cooperative card game with some deck building and hand management. So the players are going to assume the role of the Nortec operatives. And Nortec is a company that basically goes to alien planets and completely pillages them. So, yeah, maybe not the nicest set of people that we represent in this. And when the Nortec people go to harvest these planets, the locals, they don't really like this, and they're going to attack the Nortec facility, and that's where we come in. Our job as players is to fend off these attacks on the base for a set time of nine rounds. The game is set up with a central resource area with troops, weapon, armour and general equipment and even ships to buy and players will start with four militia, and these are the bog standard troops, and six times one Xenosatham cards. Xenosatham is the currency in the game and it is used to purchase all the cards in the resource area. Each player also has a division card. Now, this is basically your unique power, and it's going to give you an ongoing bonus, which grows in power through each wave of the hive. More of that later. At the beginning of each round, the players will draw up to six cards, purchase resources, and generally discuss who has what and what the options are available. Players can give each other troops, weapon, and equipment at this stage. Once this is done, the troops are placed into the play area in a specific order, with the furthest to the left being the first into battle. These troops are each player's base defence for this round. It's now that we draw four alien, these are called the Hive, and they will be placed face down parallel to the Nortec troops in preparation for battle. The battle takes place as follows. The players whose turn it is will reveal the Hive card furthest to the right and therefore closest to the Nortec troops. And after checking and applying any reveal effects, the Nortec and Hive troops will fight to the death. With each of their attack strength applied and subtracted from their health until one or both have been defeated. 
If one survives, they will fight the next combatant from the opposing force, and so on until all are slain or troops from only one faction remain. If the aliens remain, they will do their damage to the base instead, and your base has a certain amount of hit points. It's 15 points per player. And if your troops survive, on the Nortex side, they're going to remain in place and will be in play for the following round. All throughout the combat, the active players and the other players can use a range of equipment to assist. These items include med packs, bombs and general boosters. As I said, the base has 15 points per player and the players are aiming to survive through round 9 and if they do this, they win the game. The Hive, they come in three waves and get harder as you progress. Wave 1 hits in rounds 1 to 3, 2 in 4 to 6, and then finally wave 3 in 7 to 9. There are also bosses lurking in the hive decks, and things get rather tasty should the bosses pop up, Ronan. So, Sean, the theme. You mentioned it there, and I think it's something that we do have to bring up. We're pretty much playing the bad guys in Avatar. We are completely just pillaging and stripping planets. These planets that are doing no harm to us of their resources and we're harvesting them. Fantastic. Lovely people. Odd. Odd. I mean, if these weren't sort of insecty aliens and they were cute, cuddly, fluffy mammals, it would just be awful. We'd be the worst people in the world. It's just strange. So if there were Ewoks, you're saying? <laughs> no, terrible. Ewoks would be fine. <laughs> it's, you know, is it okay to, to just land on these planets, kill everything that lives there, strip it of all the minerals and fly off and rich? I, is that all right? I don't like the fact that you are the bad guy, but I like the fact that... They've turned it on his head slightly. You're still trying to achieve your goal. You're paid, to, or whatever, your troops are paid to do a certain goal, or you're a commander, whatever you want to take as your role in this. And I kind of like that you're on, the, you're on the dark side of things for once. It's not the good against bad, and you're the good. But I'll check you out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Starting, moving on from the theme to presentation. In terms of the actual theming of the game, and pulling you in and making you feel like you are that high-tech company and you have got these soldiers going out to play and the whole artwork and the way that brings it together and all the artwork on the cards i am really impressed with that the overall aesthetic of the game not necessarily individual components we might get onto yeah we are definitely going to get onto the individual components soon but the feel of the game you're absolutely right it does draw you in you do feel like you're being absolutely surrounded on all fronts by these insect-like aliens and it's a real battle for survival and i think the game carries it off brilliantly the artwork as you say is fantastic there's pictures of slain nortec troops on the alien side there's pictures of alien limbs flying on the nortec side and it just does feel completely thematic and i was drawn in quite quickly with this one ronan yeah lovely little touches with the different types of aliens like the ones that take over your mind are quite creepy looking and the the ones that are devourers actually yeah they look scary one thing that i don't know i think that lends to the actual theming of the game and it is a mechanic of the game but and we'll go into it more later but it's the the ai of the aliens they do actually work quite cleverly together they work in a unit they all help each other and they 
there's lots of things that they do to scupper your plans. And that's one of the things I feel really lent to the theme of the game is that the aliens actually work independently. They're just not, they're not just cards that come out. They actually help each other. I would say most of them work. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right in what you say in that you have things like the shield swarmer who will then add a layer of protection. It jumps to the back of the queue and adds a layer of protection to all the ones in front of him. And there's ones that add to the attack values of all the ones in front. Yeah. There are aliens that will jump to the back of your queue. And generally, you put your most dangerous soldier at the front and your kind of weaker ones or your support guns, whatever it might be at the back. And some of them just leap over or some of them are mind parasites and they take over your troops and bring them across to that oh, yeah that's side. brilliant i love that one and, and my favorite one in the whole game i hate it when it comes out but it's hilarious is the panic spider it frightens your first troop <laughs> <laughs> and he sends him back in the queue he's not having it he just <laughs> right, ah! not having that at all so. <laughs> i like the panic spider well, you're right and what that does in the fact that the aliens are not just obvious and they're not just a couple of figures, they actually have different reactions, they manipulate the game in different ways. That means, certainly at the higher player counts, that you have to cooperate really well, Sean. That having individual roles means that naturally you can get certain bits of equipment, you can share equipment, what have you. But someone might have a couple of void mines or high explosive grenades in their hands and they can use it on any player's turn and then you have to think and go, well, hold on. This alien at this time, what impact does it have? Because if a shield swarmer comes out as your fourth alien, well, it only defends itself. But if it comes out as your first one and jumps to the back, and then maybe your second one's another shield swarmer. Now everyone's got two extra health. That's happened to me. And suddenly you're like, wow, I might need to use a grenade here. Well, I might never think of using it against that particular alien in a different situation. So the cooperation is all situational and quite clever. Yeah, the cooperation really, really is. We say it about a lot of games, but there's levels of cooperation in this game. You not only have to cooperate, like keep an eye on what people are doing and what's coming out on their turn, and maybe you can play a a mine or a bomb to help them, but you've also, before you even start the turn, you've got to look what everybody's got, work together. If is one person slightly weak, so you give them a stronger weapon or maybe a bit of defense. So there's cooperation going throughout this game. Yeah, there's lots of times where I, I've got loads of troops. Anyone need a troop? Yeah, I need a troop. Okay, but I need a weapon. I've got no weapons. And th- you know, that sharing around with each other. And then when you share cards, they stay in the other person's discard pile and become part of their deck. But not if you play a one-off card, it doesn't. And it's interesting that way around as well, that you're actually aiding each other to build your individual decks. Also, it makes the deck building element slightly more interesting as well, because when you do hand over a card, that's a card that you've bought or brought into your deck, possibly, and you're giving it to another person. So now they've got to accommodate for that being in their deck and maybe get rid of something to bring that through quicker. So it changes up the deck building aspect of the game. Yeah, and what I like about it is there's two bits to the deck building which I find quite clever. One is exactly what we're talking about there. It may be situationally prudent for me right now to buy two bits of armor. But maybe last round I had to buy two bits of armor as well. And suddenly I've got four bits of armor, which you know, my deck might sound like, oh, I've kind of overloaded it. Not a problem. If it comes up on another turn and I have too much armor, I'm going to be able to give that away and we can swap and share with each other. You're almost building a group deck, albeit that you're getting your own hand each turn and you're going to have to balance it up each turn and play tactically. 
it's not such an issue if you're stuck thinking, oh, I have to buy this this turn, but it's not going to screw me for future rounds. There's still some use. They're still cooperating. Again, at higher player counts, which is something, again, we're going to get onto, but that's clever. The second bit, Sean, in the clever deck building, in so many deck builders, thinning your deck is very important. You have to find some way to get out of the rubbish. In this, what I love is the automatic upgrading of those Xenosanthems, Xenostathems, Xeno thingy, yellow crystal, gold cards. Just to explain what Roland means is the Xenosathem, you start every round by getting a Xenosathem card. So in rounds one to three in the first wave, you get a one value, then in the second wave you get three value and then in the finally in the third wave you're going to get six value straight into your hand but it the game doesn't say oh well you've got all those ones from the first round no in the second wave without nothing part of the game just an immediate action change three ones into a three it's brilliant it just gets rid of all that rubbish and it, it almost helps you to build that deck and that would just be a fiddly annoyance if you had to do that yourself that ties in with the pacing of the game in the hive being in the three different waves and they are markedly more difficult wave one to wave two and wave two to wave three new units become available to you as in you get more units in wave two different units in wave three but the fact that your money you're always getting an income so you don't have to worry about that your money is then upgrading, so you're going to have your equipment come out quicker. You're going to generally have more money on your hand. It means that your game is accelerating as the enemies are accelerating. And it's a natural piece of play, and I love that. I love the acceleration of the game, Sean. The, the, the stakes are getting higher. The damage that can be done to the base is getting higher, but you're becoming more powerful at the same time. Absolutely, you are. But... This is going to be my first negative point, and we, we do have negatives to, to say about this game. I'm not sure that you always match the aliens in terms of upgrading yourself. It's very random what aliens come out. And in the, in the first round of each wave, we've found, or certainly I've found, that you can just almost lose the game in those three rounds. What I have found over several plays of it is... In the first couple of rounds, it's very difficult because you have almost nothing and you haven't got any of that balance to your decks. And you're basically picking up what you can. When you move to wave two, which is on the fourth round, you haven't yet got a lot of threes. You get a three that turn. You haven't got more threes in your discard pile and more threes coming through your deck off of Xenosathem. So your deck is not improved enough to be good for that wave two. And generally, it's going to be round one. You get smashed. Round three, you have a good round. Next wave, round four, you're going to get smashed. Round six, you'll have a good round. And at the end, round seven, you'll get smashed. If you can survive round eight, you don't often lose on round nine because you've had three rounds by then of level six coming through and being able to spend that on the better troops and your deck is improved. And definitely it's the start of each wave it becomes more difficult yeah absolutely and also the just sheer random in the decks if you get the wrong combination of aliens come out especially in that first round but anytime really if you get a shield sawmill which is going to protect all the monsters and give them plus one defense and then a boss monster maybe in the first, as your first one that you're going to attack, then all of a sudden you're right up against it. 
I had one round where I got to the third wave, round seven of the nine, in a two-player game with only 10 points knocked off the base. And in that seventh round, we lost 32 points between us, in the two players. So we, we lost enough points, more than enough points, to lose the whole game in just the seventh round because we got the boss monster and something linked nicely with the boss monster and just took our cards and added it to their cards. And it, it ended up with a, a row of, instead of four cards, I think I had six cards on the alien side. And it was just a complete disaster. And then something similar happened to the other player. So... The random of them of the aliens, I don't know if they're quite balanced enough as they should be. But there's, there's things that can fix this, but we'll talk about them later. I think there's two issues which you've raised there. In terms of turning over those aliens and seeing what they are and having the very wildly in the impact they have, and again, I mentioned before it was situational and the cooperative is situational, Firstly, I like that. I like the turning over. I want to see what the baddie's over. Of course I hate it when I turn over exactly the wrong baddie at the wrong time. There's an alien there, the one alien I don't want. It's a charger who can take out all three of my units and suddenly ah, I'm in big, big trouble. But, you know, when I lose, and you will lose this game, when I lose, I'm disappointed because I kind of let down. I want to see more because you don't know what's coming. The game isn't predictable. And I think that adds into a bit of theme there as well in that, well, you wouldn't know what was going to come and attack you and you just have to try and prepare and deal as best you can. Going on from there, the mitigation against that randomness comes from the cooperating amongst the players. And I think that you're really open to those huge rounds of taking lots of damage when you play with two players, even three players. One player is a separate issue altogether, which we'll deal with in a second, because it's nigh on impossible with one player. But I think that the mitigation comes from the cooperation, the more players, the I'm having a good round, so I hopefully I'll be able to spend some of my stuff to help you out when you're having a poor round. When you have only two players, it's very easy to have two unlucky turns of alien cards or just two poor rounds or two bad draws of currency, Xena save them. And then, like you say, Sean, one bad round can lose you the game. 32 points damage. It doesn't matter if you had zero damage on the base. 32 points damage in a two-player game, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> more than and yeah you're absolutely right the difficulty does scale higher the lower the player count and i can see your point definitely when when something bad turns up and it's just the luck of the draw and how you've prepared for maybe one event maybe happening or something completely different happens and yeah the random has to be there but sometimes it's just so debilitating and there's not really a lot you can do about it but the game has some charm about it and you do, you always want to flip those cards over, and you always are disappointed, exactly as you said, Ronan. One of the things with this is that there should be some sort of help, tweak, change to the system for lower player counts because it is way, way harder. I'm telling you, this game is nigh on impossible solo. It says one to four players. Playing as one player with one role 
it's just it's futile. I'd say it's really difficult to get just even past wave two, and I've given it a few goes, and it's just not happening. Whereas with four player, actually, I got to the stage now with the base game where we'd be winning much more often than we'd be losing. So to me, and this is going to lead on to sort of some of the doubts I have about the game, but Sean, it needs something for lower player counts to make it more playable. Well, it does, Ronan. Yeah, and we're leading nicely into our, probably our next section, which is all our issues we've got with the game. But it does need some house ruling or those Kickstarter extras. But we're going to talk about those now, I think, in terms of all the little fiddly things that are wrong with this game that could have been ironed out in the design and playtesting process. Ronan, do you want to start us off? For all they've done right. Okay. It's clear they've cut some ridiculous corners that just didn't need cutting, which are just irritating. Now, I'm going to talk gameplay in a second, but I know that Sean is itching to join in here on the ridiculous component shortcuts. I think I'm going to leave Sean's <laughs> favourite to him, which is the tokens. I'm going to just pick up two of mine. One of them might sound really silly, and it, it is a nitpick, but it's a nitpick that I'm going to point out, all right? There's dial. There's a dial to tell you how much damage you've taken on the base. These dials are similar to the ones you get in Fantasy Flight for lots of the games, for, for Team Manager and for Lord of the Rings card game and lots of games. Here's something really simple, all right? And Sean thinks I'm a nutter. The numbers on the Fantasy Flight dials are squared up to the panel. So when you turn the dial, the numbers are squared up, yeah? They're in line with the reading panel. On here, they're not. They're in line with the center of the dial which means that you're always reading numbers at a wonk they're on an angle they're slanting off to the side do you know what it is a small detail but it's an annoying small detail and it's the sort of thing that makes me think did you really pay enough attention to this something a bit more serious they give you the tracks to lay the cards out in the two different lanes now, as Sean described, you're going to have a soldier. Often you're going to give that soldier a weapon. You're going to give it some armor. You can have up to three cards splayed out from this soldier. And the track can only hold a card. It's not thick enough. That might sound simple, but it's annoying because then the cards start tilting over and they start wonking off and you can't really lay them down properly. And not only that, you have to put some tokens on these cards and then there's no room to put tokens and then everything's at a slant. So the tokens start sliding off. And then, Sean, you have to talk about the tokens in themselves. But the use of the tokens becomes ridiculous because you can't lay out the cards properly. They're falling off and they're the same tokens for several different things and it just doesn't work. And it's like, is this the game you wanted to present? Well, after all this hard work, this beautiful artwork... Is these the stupid shortcuts you want to take, which makes the game irritating to play? Sean, the tokens, in themselves. <laughs> I backed this as a Kickstarter, and I got all the Kickstarter extras and the, the, the special lanes that are not just little bits of paper card. They're just thick card that fold outwards, and all, all this extra that they've given you, all this luxury that they've given you that doesn't quite work and the tokens they're not kickstarter extra but the tiny little plastic tokens like i think i've likened them to a travel connect four or something or a pound shop connect four they're just tiny little cheap tokens there's not enough of them for a start 
but they just look so out of place with that beautiful artwork and and all these beautiful cards and what have you. They just look like what did you bring those in from another game? Have you tried to pimp it up but failed miserably? They're awful. They're absolutely awful. And not only do they look terrible, they're non-functional. And there's not enough of them. They're just terrible. <laughs> there's, it's, there's red ones and there's blue ones. So the red is if you're doing extra damage. The blue is if you've got extra armor. But now I have one surround powers I can use on all these different equipment and troops. How do I mark that? Oh, I just use a token. What token? And I've now got aliens that can up to 10 health. And I've got units up to 12 health. And how, how many do you get? 25, 30 tokens in the game? With four players playing, with multiple aliens out, and multiple units that have got that much health. How the hell do I track their health? It's literally awful, awful looking, not the right tokens in there. They don't tell you how to use the tokens, and then there's not enough of them. So you're not a fan of the tokens? Do you know, this is what gets me, right? Because when they cut those corners, what it does for me anyway, it starts putting in my head... What other corners did they cut? Where else have they not spent the care on this game that it deserves? Because I think, as you can tell from the first you know, half of what we've just been discussing, we both see a lot to like in this game. But there's these things. Now, with a card game like this, it is the nature of the beast that you're going to sometimes fall into the same traps that we always accuse Kickstarter games of. Things like... Is the game always going to be balanced? Well, in a, a card game, with this many cards, with this many different powers, it's difficult for every single game to be balanced. But it's also Kickstarter games. Have they been played enough to know they balance? In a game like this with so many combinations, you can sometimes get awesome combinations or broken combinations, or combinations which you just can't beat. But same as if a game has not been playtested enough. Sometimes you can just get dud games of games with lots of cards in. But same with Kickstarter games. So is this an issue whereby it's that sort of a genre, they've gone very ambitious with the card, they've gone very thematic, there's lots of different equipment, they've given you variety in the games you can play, therefore sometimes it's not going to work. Or have they not playtested it enough? And when they cut corners, I stop giving them the benefit of the doubt and I start going, well... Have you given this to care and attention? Have you cut corners on the playtesting? Have you cut corners on the game development? I have to agree with you, Ronan. I mean, there's other things as well. I think we mentioned this is a deck builder, and this is a game where you're practically shuffling the cards all the time. Every time you start the game, you're shuffling cards. The card quality's not great, Ronan. It's not. I I have played the game with Sean. I also borrowed Sean's copy to play a few games, obviously, for this review. And I had to phone him up with his brand-new Kickstarter game. Sean... Firstly, your cards are flecking on the back after not many plays. That was what? Less than half half a dozen plays in, maybe, at that stage? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, we played together, then I'd taken it, and it was in my first couple of plays that I'd taken it. And I was like, oh, man, your cards are not looking great. And secondly, the box has fallen apart. Well, the box arrived falling apart, so I don't know what happened But it's an awful box. It's terrible. It's a big, huge box, like... It's sort of Castle Ravenloft, that kind of size box, very deep. And if you have something that's that deep, it needs to be reinforced. And this just isn't and hasn't been reinforced. So It's not even the, thick, the thickness of a normal game box. It's, it's thin cardboard with a layer of paper pasted over it. And it's almost like the paper is holding it together. 
And yeah, absolutely. And these are all small little things, but when they start to mount up, like there's no round marker, Ronan. In in I think in the Kickstarter game, I think you do get a little miniature that you can use as the round marker. It's one of the Ajax suits of armor. But for the normal Joe on the street who's buying this in their local friendly game shop, then there's no round marker. You have to use one of your tokens that you don't have enough of as a round marker. That's just cheap. <laughs> And there's things in this that are just cheap, and the game deserves better. Another issue, and I'm I'm sitting from the, the green grass side of the fence here. The Kickstarter extras, I got them. They're brilliant. They do different things to the game. They improve the game, I think, in our opinion, especially the hero cards. They have decided not to include these at all in a base game, or not to make them available to anybody. Now, whether they're going to backtrack and and sell these through Board Game Geek or whatever yes, a lot of companies do, then I don't know. But at the moment, it doesn't look like they're going to come out. Now, these are not just one card that gives you a little bonus power. These are really changed the game, and me and Roland felt that they changed the game very much to, to the benefit of the players, especially the, the hero cards. They add a new depth to the game. They're actual expansions. They're not just promos. So I are disappointed at Cool Mini or not for that. And it's not like them to not to not exploit something for a couple of quid, you know what I mean? There's a 10-minute rant about the heroes. So the heroes are, if you have a particular unit that lasts a wave of aliens, then there's one hero available for each different type of unit and you upgrade to it and it comes in your hand. And they are way more powerful than the base units. And i tell you what I found with them. I was moaning about it being difficult with lower player count. The heroes help you with lower player count, first of all. They make it so you can win two-player. Not not one player, I'll go on about that again, but two-player makes it winnable because they give you that little edge. And in a game like this, it is little edges that help. Here is the really irritating thing. Sean got some variable units. Okay, so... For Wave 2 and Wave 3, he's got a couple of different units you can put in and out, which changes up the game, adds a bit of variety, gives you some space to explore. Fantastic, okay? There are no heroes for those extra units. So if I'm playing two-player, I either play with variety and make it very difficult, or I can only play with the base set and make the difficulty pretty much balanced. That is for the sake of four cards they had to add. One hero each for those four extra units. They added those in. So much more playability to the game. Just these little thoughts. These little... Have you even considered that? That for the sake of four cards, what you're doing to the game. I'm telling you now, Sean. If they don't make heroes available, I don't buy the game. Fair enough. And it's just, again, it's such an easy fix, as you said. And it just makes you think... Have they really given this the care and attention that they maybe give to some of their other games? Or have they just pushed this out? Now, I was part of the Kickstarter campaign, as I've already said. And this game, it really felt like it didn't have the same sort of feeling behind it that a zombie side or the Rum and Bones campaign. And I'm a big fan of Cool Minion. I love Zombicide. I've got all the Zombicides that have come out so far. They're, they're brilliant. They deliver on time. Excellent. This one just felt different. It just felt from the get-go that they just didn't have the same amount of passion about it. And it, it's come across when it was, since I've received the game. There were so many little things that 
would be ironed out in that final playtesting process that just haven't been, Ronan. Right, playtesting. Sean, the Kickstarter alien units. What, those impossible to beat Kickstarter? Impossible <laughs> to beat. Literally, they cannot have been playtested. The Death Moors. Yeah, they. Wave twos. They feel like. Now, this is just a complete guess. I have no background information on this one. It feels like we've given the heroes a little expansion. So, we're going to give the aliens a little expansion, but we can't really be bothered to playtest it. So, we're just going to throw in some ideas. It feels like they needed a stretch goal, so they designed a card and never played it. They, they can't have played with those aliens because they just made the game impossible. You cannot win with them in the deck. Yeah, a couple of those come out, and that's it. That is game over. We played a game recently, the two of us, where we were quite experienced at the game. We were getting to the point where we were winning a lot of games. Yeah, not maybe not two-player, but three- and four-player. And we put the aliens in thinking, getting a bit cocky, thinking, okay, we can take this now. We had two of those new aliens in the one round, in the fourth round, the fourth round. And that was it. That was game over. We got absolutely we obliterated. <laughs> I think we our base nearly died twice over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Coming back to, I think, away from all the Kickstarter stuff, or the, as hard as it is to do, I'm going to pull it back to the base game for one of my last points to make. Now, I've been saying it's really hard with lower player count. The cooperation is great higher player count. Probably the difficulty is angled towards higher player count. So everyone's going to be there going, well, Ronan, why don't you play the game with three or four players and shut up? Sean, I put to you downtime. Downtime. Brutal. Brutal. Which actually reminds me of the suggested playing time of 45 minutes on Board Game Geek. What? Is that 45 minutes of downtime <laughs> per round? <laughs> 45 minutes? I don't think I can play a solo game in 45 minutes of this. No chance. See, there's good and bad here because we, I think we've both mentioned this the last time we played it. Yeah, this game runs really, really long. Really long. Like you're talking sort of two and a half hours if, if you're playing with More. four players. Yeah, 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 plus. But you don't feel it. And that's the, the bad side is it just takes forever. And the, the good side is you don't feel it. We played two player two and a half hours, didn't we? That's the last time we played when we've both played it a fair amount. But you don't feel it. You don't feel the time going because it is so involving. It's so thematic and it just draws you in. But the downtime when other players are playing and you've, you've got to pay attention to what they're doing in case you need to help them. I don't know. There's, there's a house rule somewhere. Someone more clever than I will come up with a house rule that just takes away that element and everyone can play at the same time. Maybe put all your stuff in the middle and people go, can I take that? I don't know. There's, there's something there. People that... are talking about maybe everyone reveal your first alien at the same time. Yeah, yeah, possibly. And everyone deals. But then there's timing issues mm. with suddenly, you know, like uh, an alien goes to the back or you're still a hero or a fifth alien comes into play and does it all work that way around? But obviously, people is happening. This problem is happening two people and the down but the downtime is oh, the four players oh you do have to pay attention to what's going on but if i don't have a med pack or scout drones wherever it might be in my hand that's useful i have to pay the vaguest amount of attention to what's going on and what's going on in other players 
over that side of the table with all the great artwork and stuff it's not that clear and it's definitely not clear to see exactly what powers each of their equipment has because there's no room to lay them out properly so you have to end up tucking them underneath each other gripe 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 uh, and again i don't want to moan too much because the time does fly but the downtime it can be tough yeah, it can be, but as I said, Ronan, it, the time just does disappear when you're playing this game. You just don't notice it. And the first time I played this was, which was at the Lobster Con, which we talked about last time. We were there for two and a half hours. We didn't finish the game, and it was only when someone said, "I'm getting really tired. What's the time?" And it was like two in the morning, and we were like, "Wow." Where did that go? And I just thought maybe because we were learning the game and that, but that's continued throughout every play. Time just disappears, but where they're getting 45 minutes, I have no <laughs> earthly idea. I'm sitting here nodding at the time flying. So, Sean, I think that we have given the game as came from Kickstarter and as is available in the shops a thorough going over, but I know you're an excited, Sean, about recent developments. Well, Ronan. I am excited, Sean. So this has been one of our longer reviews, but it just shows the depth of feeling that we've got for this game. And recently I received an email from Cool Mini or Not, which went out to all their Kickstarter backers. And I think that things are starting to look up because there is an expansion coming out. It's a standalone that can be integrated with the original game. It's called Xenoshift Dreadmire. And they're looking for playtesters, Ronan. They're actually sending it out there, asking anybody who backed the game to write in and they will give them a print-and-play version of the game and looking for ideas. So maybe that's a sign that they realise that they're onto something good here at this game and people are really enjoying it, but also they may have dropped the ball in a few areas. And I think that is a good sign from a company when they start sending stuff out to playtest to, to all the backers of the game. So what it, just quickly, what it does, it brings a new faction in, lots of new troops, a new type of alien. They're all swamp creatures or something. Uh, yeah, so I, there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Sean, they is possible light at the end of the tunnel but you know we've been playing a game which we're going to review in a couple of episodes time spoiler gates of luyang and there's just something little i noticed on the back of that rule book there's a list of playtesters and that list goes up to something like 270 playtesters for that game when you look at a lot of kickstarter games you look at the list of playtesters it's about 10 or a dozen and half of them have got the same surname as one or two of the designers and that difference shows now, if they get playtesting done in the right way using their Kickstarters, if they send out blind test rule books, if they send out proper questionnaires that aren't leading, if they get these people on Google Hangouts or Skype calls and talk through things rather than relying on one A4 sheet of tick boxes and take correct and proper playtest feedback, if the playtesters try and break the game, playtesters try and play at the extremes, then there's light at the end of the tunnel. Then that's a game being developed. That's a game being nurtured. I hope the game gets that. Do you think the process is going to be as thorough as it should be? My honest answer, Ronan, is I don't know. It looks like they are 
admitting that there possibly was issues with this and they're not just sending out another faction with the same rules, the same problems. So it looks like they are thinking about this and so I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm not going to count those chickens, Ronan. We have spent a long time talking about this, Ronan. That's one of our most lengthy reviews so far. What are your final thoughts? Well, I think... The reason this has been so long, Sean, I think we've both been quite passionate, and strangely enough, both in either direction on the game, we've praised it greatly, we've criticised it harshly. The reason we care, you know, we've played this game more than many other games which we've chosen to review, despite its flaws. We keep coming back to it, and we're so frustrated about them, because it is so close again there is something there there is a diamond but it's amongst this rough i want to play the game like every time i play it it's interesting and i have fun and every time i'm frustrated and my problem with it is and as i said earlier i don't know if that's just the way the game is or i'm frustrated because of there's rough edges on the game and it's hard to tell I'm frustrated because when I play it, I find myself thinking of ways to tweak it. I find myself thinking of ways to improve it and say, oh, maybe if we did it like this, maybe we did it like that. I find myself being frustrated with the easy wins, with the ridiculous tokens, with the lack of space to play out the cards properly, with the lack of heroes. Easy wins, call me the or not. You've let yourself down on that. The game is I'm going to say a really, really good game. There's enough theme, there's enough challenge, there's enough variety, there's enough unexpected surprise, and there's enough true cooperative in there to rise above the disservice, I'm afraid, that has been done to it. You tell me that with the expansion they're looking for more support, they're back in this, they're trying to go down a better path. I really hope they do. I'm looking forward to the expansions. I can't buy it until they make those heroes available I hope they see sense. I hope they present a proper and complete product available to their customers to be able to buy and enjoy because Xenoshift, if it gets developed, if it carries on, could become a really amazing game. As it is, I still recommend it. Xenoshift is a very good deck building, cooperative game that keeps the pace up, keeps the theme strong and keeps the players engaged despite downtime. I initially backed this game because it seemed on the surface like nothing that I have in my collection. It almost seemed like a tower defense game with a strong deck building element. And although I found that it brings nothing really new and innovative to the table in terms of its individual mechanisms, etc., the sum of its parts are unlike anything else I've played. It's very thematic, has lovely artwork, but the small failures and my perception that it wasn't really fully tested, they kind of add up to a fairly substantial frustration and irritation. However, the fun that I have playing this game and the hours that are literally lost in this involving social and tactical game, they they far outweigh the negatives. When I think about it, that is actually quite something. I love playing this game, and it stays with me after I play it. I think about it, I have dreams about it, all sorts. I'm going to make a similar plea to Ronan here. Cool Mini or not, you have a really good game on your hands. Next time, 
don't let the people who have already bought the game try to finish your game off. Finish it off first and then send it out. It's the small details that matter with this one. And you're very, very close to a fantastic game. And that is Xenoshift Onslaught. So, first up from me this week is Elysium. This is designed by Matthew Dunstan and Brett J. Gilbert. Matthew has designed Empire Engine and Relic Runners, and Brett has designed Divinary, Divinar, Divinary and Carnicle. It's published by Space Cowboys. Their massive hit was Splendor. They've also published Black Fleet. And as part of the Day group, they're starting to find their feet as a publisher. This is for two to four players. It came out this year, 2015, and it's got an advertised playtime of 60 minutes, which I'd say, as usual, slightly longer when you learn in the game, but not far from the truth once you know it relatively well. This game is at heart all about card drafting, which is going to lead into set collection to score points, And the theme is that you are supposed to be some sort of Greek demigod creating legends by collecting equipment, collecting heroes and doing the bidding of various gods from within the whole Greek pantheon. So how's the game played briefly? It's played over five eras. In each era, each player is going to draft three cards for a set of cards in the middle And they're also going to have to take one mission from a set of missions available to all. Now, in order to draft these cards, you're going to have to have columns. Everyone has a green, a red, a blue, and a yellow column. And the cards and the missions are assigned to certain colours. And you must have those columns still in your collection to be able to draft the particular cards. If a card has a yellow and a red sign on it, as long as I've got yellow and red in front of me, I can take that card. Every time I take a card or a mission, I must use a column. It doesn't have to be the column that I use to pay for it. It just has to be one of my columns, thereby reducing my options going forward. If I end up not able to take one of the cards available, I must take a card face down from the top of the deck, which becomes a citizen card. Or if I cannot take one of the missions, now remember one of my four drafts has to be a mission, I flip a mission over, basically I get a dud mission, which gives me less income and less chance to score points as the game goes on. What are these cards? Well, there are eight gods in the game. They're gods such as Ares, Athena, Poseidon, Zeus, Hades, etc. You take five of these sets of god cards and you shuffle them together to form a deck. And then, like I say, you deal. Basically, it's three times the number of players plus one cards out into the middle for everyone to choose from. The cards come in colours according to the gods. Each god has its own colour. And they also comes in values one, two, and three. And that's going to be important for the set collection part, which happens in sort of the second half of each era. This drafting is pretty much the first half of each era. Also on those cards, they have effects, they have certain powers. Some of them happen as soon as you draft them, some of them have got one-off powers, some of them give you some sort of income or some sort of action in the second half we're going to talk about where you start forming legends. Some of them are going to score you points at the end of the game with something called Kronos powers and you've got a couple of other different things in there as well. So the cards will allow you to take money from other players, earn victory points, possibly 
move more cards into your Elysium, which is where the game gets its name from. I'll explain that mechanism in a second. And as is standard, maybe take cards away from other players. Just do different things to allow you to get going, get some income going in both points and in gold. Now, why do you need that gold? When you go into the second half of the round, what everyone's going to be doing is the cards you've drafted will be above your player board. You're looking to move those cards down, transfer them from your domain above the board into your Elysium below the board. And when you transfer them, you're looking to collect sets. And basically, to transfer each card, it costs an amount of gold according to the level of the card. So a level 2 card costs 2 gold to transfer. That's what you need gold for mostly. In terms of sets, what are you trying to collect? You're trying to collect either cards of the same colour or cards of the same number. So I might be looking to get a 1, 2 and 3 in blue, a full set of Poseidon, and that's going to give me a number of points at the end of the game. Or I might be looking to collect 5 1s in all the different colours in the game, because you're always going to have 5 different colour cards, 5 different gods available during each game. When I collect those sets, the more cards I get in them, the more points I'm going to score. I can fill up these sets, they're called legends by the way, I can fill up these sets using those civilian cards I discussed face down. They'll complete a set for you and score you some points and possibly get you some bonuses, which I'll move on to in one second, but they'll also cost you two points at the end of the game. In terms of using those bonuses, for each god that's in the game, there are bonuses available for the first two people to collect a full set of one, two, three. Also, for collecting, the first person to collect two of each number, so two ones, will get a bonus tile. As long as they stay ahead of everyone else in those ones that they've collected, they'll keep that bonus tile to the end of the game. However, if they've collected two ones, someone else subsequently collects three ones, they'll take the bonus off them. And you have to get ahead of the current bonus tile holder in order to steal that bonus for collecting the sets of numbers. It's just something to promote quicker play and to make sure you're moving cards from your domain down to your Elysium as the game goes on. You're going to be scoring points during the game, as I said, for some of the effects that you have. The missions that you take are going to give you an incoming gold in points, and they also dictate how many cards you can transfer from your domain into your Elysium each turn. Certain god powers will help you with that. For example, Hades, god of the underworld, generally gives you bonuses in transferring cards downwards. The end of the game, you're going to score points for... Kronos powers, which happen at the end of the game, which appear on certain cards. As long as they're in your Elysium, they'll give you bonuses. It might be plus one point for each card of the same colour within this legend. It might be plus one point for each card of a different colour within this legend. Something along those lines. You're going to get those set bonus tiles. Five points if you're the first person to collect all three in a certain colour. Two if you're the second. You're going to get bonuses, like I say, three points for having the most ones, six for having the most twos, or nine for having the most threes. You're going to lose points for those civilians, and you're going to total that all up. If there's a certain god, Ares, in the game, he adds a certain type of scoring in there as well. Each different god mixes the game up in different ways. The game is all about managing your columns to give yourself options as the round goes on, about trying to create different synergies between your cards, but still quite tactical because you're always trying to cull those cards, get them down into Elysium. The game's not long. You only have 20 actions in the game in order to score points at the end. Also, you're looking for a little bit of screwage. Negative drafting, you can take the cards of other players and leave them in a difficult position, or you can stitch them up and leave them not able to take a proper mission and just get the rubbish mission, which is where you flip it over. You only get one transfer and one gold as your income, which leaves them slightly stuck for the round. Sean, there's Elysium. What's your initial thoughts? Well, I'll go with my initial thoughts as soon as you cracked that box open when we played our very first game of this, Ronan. It's gorgeous! It 
He's lovely. <laughs> gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. For anybody who doesn't know what we're on about, the game insert itself and the way that the cards are laid out look like a Greek temple with the cards laid out like columns. And it looks absolutely amazing in the box. Then, when you take out the decks of cards, each of the eight gods, set of cards representing the eight gods, are all done by a different artist. And the artwork is absolutely spectacular. It's a gorgeous looking game. It is. It looks lovely. Very impressed with the presentation. Very nicely made. I think Space Cowboys are getting a reputation already for making nice games with nice components. It's not overpriced for those lovely components as well. It's pretty reasonable here in the UK. I don't know about the rest of the world. Moving on from just the presentation of the physical components, the presentation of the rules. Now, the rule book is pretty good. The rules are clear. There are examples. There's an extra guidebook in there which tells you how every single card in the game works, which is almost over the top in terms of explanation. Everything's pretty clear. I did get one little rule wrong on my first playthrough, but then I guess that's as much my fault as anyone else's. Sean, the rules, they all make sense to you. How did you find it learning the game and as a play experience to begin with? I think the rules themselves are, are quite easy. They're easy to pick up. There's nothing too taxing in the rules themselves. I think all, as we'll talk as we go along, all the sort of depth in the game, it doesn't come from the basic rules. It's all from those little choices that grow into bigger choices as you go through. I will say one thing. Now that I've said that the game looks amazing, I didn't feel like the theming in the game carried through into the actual gameplay. I didn't feel like a demigod vying for power. And for as amazing as the artwork on each of the sets of cards is, once the first few rounds, not even the first few rounds, the first round was in underway, I was looking at just the symbols and the colours. I wasn't looking at the artwork. That was a little bit disappointing for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you on with a yes and a no here. I disagree with you about the actual individual god sets. I can see the theming within the individual sets. Poseidon, very much about natural disasters, attacking other people's cards, attacking their gold. Bad things are happening to them with the the flood and cyclops and what have you. That's very much the in-your-face set. Athena is much more friendly and huggy. You get some stuff, everyone else gets a little bit less. Hades, like I mentioned, he'll give you more transfer options. Ares has got the more attacking cards as well. I feel like each individual card set has got a bit of theme going on within it. My problem where I'm going to agree with you is, who am I and what am I doing? And that for me is the more fundamental question when we talk about theme in a game. Who am I? It's become the running joke at London on board. How many games can you explain? We're all wizards or something. Well, in this game, we're all Greek wizards or something. We're collecting some stuff to put into this place to score some points. The overarching theme to tie together, like I say, opinions vary. What I thought were quite thematic cards just wasn't there. I agree with that side of it. I just felt... You're right. You're absolutely right. The different gods play differently. And if you really, really look into it, they possibly do play thematic. Like Ares attacks, fair enough. But I think you really do have to look at it if you want to see that in it. But to play the game, you don't. Once you start down a certain path and you're going for ones or you're going for a certain colour of card, then that's all you're really looking for. Hoping that that colour card comes out or hoping that the two in the blue comes out because that's the last one you need for your set you're not thinking oh i hope a hades card comes out 
But we'll agree to disagree on that one. But I, yeah, I do definitely see, as I said myself, I, I didn't feel like a demigod. I didn't feel like someone who was trying to earn his place at the right hand of Zeus. I just felt like I was a, somebody collecting sets of cards to score points, as you just said. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. No, I, I am agreeing with you there. It, and in terms of the actual gameplay itself, it is very tactical. The fact is, I might have the one and three, like you said, in, in that Poseidon, and I might need the two. And I might just not see it. It may not come out. And that's where I think the game lures you in a little bit. And in terms of when you see a card game like this with this many different combos and powers on the cards, you start to think, oh, wow, I should be really looking for synergies and looking to work these together. When really, you're just looking for the odd card here and there that will help you out, that will go with what you've got going on. If you're not focusing on getting the missions which give you more transfers, that's when you want the Hades cards. If you're looking to collect a set of threes, for example, you might be looking for the Hephaestus cards, which are going to give you more of a gold income. And it's just a light overarching strategy to go with, like you say, Sean, especially towards the last, the fourth and the fifth era, you're just looking for the colours and the numbers to collect your sets. And this is all just drapery around a set collection game. And The mechanisms are much more important here than the theme. The only thing I will say about the luck of the draw is that they have at least put in that civilian option. You, you can get forced to take a civilian, a face-down card, which will fit into any legend, or you can choose to take one as well. So if you never get that two you need, well, do you know, it's not the end of the world. At, at least I can take a citizen and do it, and I'll finish the set. It won't be quite as good as getting the card I needed, but it's also not awful. You talked about the, the mechanics of, of the actual game being probably more and more important than this overarching theme. And that's where I think this game absolutely flourishes, Ryan. I think there's a whole host of interesting choices. A lot of them rely on timing. Some of them you're looking to scupper the other players. And the lifeblood of this game is that seemingly simple choices have this really strong ripple effect. It's just a case of, do I take that two that I need now or do I take a mission? And that can lead to absolute chaos for you later on in the round if you're just if somebody blocks you from that mission it's really really strong in that sense yeah i think what comes through with that is the player order becomes very important that's part of it in that taking the quest that will put you first next turn gives you a lower income and less transfers but it can be the, the real you know going third or fourth can be a real problem and then conversely if people rush for cards, going third and fourth, you can then start manipulating which missions become more important and try and stitch people up. I love that there's a little bit of interaction between where you're on turn order. If the first player chooses a mission, suddenly you're all rushing to get them. If they go after cards, then maybe the fourth player then gets an edge where, do you know what, I'm not going to get great cards here, but I can apply pressure another way. And that all comes through the interaction with the columns. Which column? each player discards you have to keep an eye on because every time they do that it affects what your options are going to be later on in the turn now there are pluses and negatives on that it puts pressure on what column you're going to throw away and actually usually if there is any downtime or ap it comes to people thinking about what column to throw away rather than what card to take it's good in that it's a nice bit of interaction to go with the other bits of interaction we might discuss in a second. But also means that sometimes you can be locked in halfway through a round. You could be in a situation where you go, well, I've got rid of these two columns, which leaves me, I have to take that mission. And I know I'm not going to get a card, so I'm definitely going to get a citizen. And then the second half of a round can be kind of a throwaway. You can sometimes find yourself 
stuck in a straitjacket, Sean? Yeah, you can. You can tie yourself in knots as well. And in my very first game, I just didn't pick up on turn order being that important. I always thought, oh, you know what? If I get the three or four mission, which gives me more money or the ability to do more transfers. But you and the other player I was playing against were able to manipulate by going first, send me down certain paths, almost set me up to, to fail. And I actually finished last in the game. Not by a whole heap. It was still a competitive game, but I finished last. So I learned from in my next game. And then after that, I learned again. I think there is a learning arc, and that's every good game should have a learning arc, really. One issue I do have with the game, well, it's an issue that is good and bad. I think the game is a little bit too short. Now, on one side, I think it fails almost to develop. It's almost over before it begins. I'm starting to get an engine together. I'm starting to work towards things and it's over. But then I want to play it again. So it's, it's a good thing that I, I want to play that game again. So it definitely doesn't that stage. Welcome. So my sort of way, I think with, with thinking on the past there, were the way I phrased it was, Am I getting enough back from the game for the amount of thinking I'm doing? Because I feel like I'm really concentrating a lot here and I'm trying to work out the best thing to do and I'm racing and interacting heavily with the other players around racing for bonuses, racing during the draft. To, to If I don't take this card, they'll take it. And then if I throw that column, it opens up this option to them. And, and when at the end of the day... What I'm doing in this game is drafting 15 cards and taking five missions. I'm not doing that much. The game is not giving me a lot back. There's not a lot of loops going on. Like I said, there's not a lot of synergies between cards. You don't have a lot of time doing anything, but I feel like I'm thinking a lot for this one hour. That's where I'm going with it, Sean. Does the game give enough back for what I put into it in effort? <sighs> it's a tough question, Rona. We put everything into every game, obviously, especially with the two of us are playing. We're very competitive. And I don't because we, we hate each other absolutely, right? <laughs> and I hope that comes across. I would hate to lead anyone astray. I don't know if if we were to ease back and maybe take it a bit lighter, would we get the same returns? That's the thing. I agree. It does feel like you're putting a lot of thought into these quite simple choices that aren't really going to garner you a lot in return. But as I said, they do seem to have ripple effects. They do seem to affect the way the round goes in a later turn and how what people's choices are subsequently so it is a difficult question but i think i disagree with you i'm not 100 percent sure that but i think i disagree with you. i think the more thought you put into it it does actually have benefits what i think i'm learning to do as i go further in with more plays and I get more more familiar with the cards. Now, it is actually quite hard to get very familiar with the cards because of the eight different sets, you only play with five at once. Obviously, they interact slightly different with each other, and you're not going to see every card in every game, and you personally are not going to be able to use the vast majority of cards in every game. So getting to learn the game takes quite a few plays. But the most important skill, really, I'm learning with this one is to filter the information. At the beginning, I'm probably slower. It's more wide open. There are more options open to me. I don't know what legends I'm going to start chasing, what scoring options I'm going to set up for myself, exactly what my loose strategy is going to be. As the game then moves on, it's filtered down. It's a case of, well, I know I'm going for threes. I know I've got my blue. I might maybe I'm going to go for purple now. And then it's a case of looking at what's available, filtering, prioritizing, going, right, I need that mission because I've got to transfer three this turn and I need that card that helps and that card helps and that's what I'm going to do and if my last 
draft of the four is rubbish, it's rubbish. Doesn't matter that much. Not every card is vital. Getting 10 really good cards is better than getting 15 okay cards. And that's, I think, the skill I'm getting with the game. It gives you loads of information. These cards have all different sorts of powers and colours and numbers, and there's lots of options available to everyone else. It's a case of prioritising for yourself and going, that's what I need to do first, that's what I need to do second, that's what I need to do third, and cutting out all the white noise around you. It's going back to my only point. It's just it's a simple decision like getting rid of the one of the coloured columns that represent the missions at the end. It's just... It's amazing how much thought you put into that one simple move. Just take one one column away. That's all you're doing. One it's column. the repercussions, isn't yeah, it? It's it the is, repercussions it is, of each. Definitely. And I think the columns is where that most comes out, is that the choice of colour which you discard affects then every choice for every other player. Because then they can go, oh, right, he hasn't got a blue anymore. I, the blue now, I can relax. I'll definitely get that card. Or I'll definitely get that quest. Right, now my priorities change. And uh, that's what kind of keeps you involved. As long as you can get people in and, and pass almost a kind of strange thematic thing of it, you know, it's easy to sell on looks, hard to sell on theme, and get them involved and get them realising how important each of those decisions is on columns specifically. You can really engage the group. And I have had a couple of plays of this where everyone's trying to win, everyone's focused. Almost every column that gets discarded, you can see people wearing the gears or an R or a laugh sometimes because you know, oh, by discarding that or by drafting that, you've stitched over that person. And maybe we haven't talked about it enough. There are many opportunities for screwage in this. There surely are. When I screwed over the wife and almost earned myself a little trip to the spare room, but not quite. But it's where you deserve to be. To be honest, it is true. Yeah, you're right. You can stop people getting missions. You can pick up a card they want. You can stop them transferring things. Yeah, there's there's lots that you can do. One I will say, Ronan, you mentioned about the you're only playing with the five out of eight decks. Now that in itself is, is gives lots of replayability. But I just thought when I was playing this game that it was just rife for expansions I don't think it's going to be a hard game to expand to bring new things into there's it almost leans that way already well you're kind of leading me in through the back gate into the next thing I was going to ask you about it's absolutely wide open for expansions and the sort of expansions what I think have been very successful I'm not sure that the industry has picked up enough on on little mini expansions when you see them for the likes of a game we're going to talk about later Death Angel or Sentinels of the Multiverse or I don't know, Rory Story Cubes or whatever small little expansions that cost a few pounds or a few dollars people will pick those up Imagine Space Cowboys got on this and they release a god every now and then that costs four or five quid. People are going to buy them. And, and it gives an extra boost to a game in quite a simple, low-cost way. And that would be my thinking were I Space Cowboys, but hey, I'm not in the business. The one thing that relies upon any sort of expansion is this game being successful. We know it's going to be successful. We know it's going to sell a lot because it's just been nominated for Spiel des Jahres. Sean, is this Spildus Yarrow's worthy? I actually think it is. I think it's got clever mechanisms. I think it's, like we've talked about it, it does look amazing, but it does make you, you think. And they tend to go for games that make you think, make you work together. It might not be the most social game where you're all talking to each other, but you're all looking what each other are doing and everything that everyone does affects the other players in the game. 
Actually, do you know what? I'm going to haul you up on that. Okay, go on. I think especially for a sort of a Euro seemingly dry game, there's a lot of talking in this game because a lot of cards affect other people and will either take points or, or give points or take coins away or Athena cards will help everyone or because of, of the interactivity or the bonuses and racing to get the bonuses. I think there's more talking in this than in a lot of similar weight Euro-style games. Yeah, I meant sort of like actual game talk and stuff. Like, yeah, there's, there's reactionary talk and like abuse or punches and if we're playing that's flying across the table. But uh, yeah, you're, right. you're probably right. You're probably right. There is a bit more table chat, but it's not a table, like a social game in itself, but it does promote that in, in its mechanisms. It does make you take account of what everybody's doing. And I think Spilder Yaris tends to go for stuff like that. They tend to go for clever games that promote thinking and talking to each other. And especially in the Kenner Spilder Yaris, which is the section this is, which is the more adult version of the Spilder Yaris, I think this sits very nicely in the type of game they go for, Ronan. They seem to want to bring casual players through. They don't go for massively dense games. They go for almost next step games. I think there's enough in Elysium and nice combinations, nice little simple economy. There's plenty going on without being overwhelming, I think. We are getting close to summing up as far as I can tell, Sean, but I would be remiss without pointing something out. No score sheets. Ah, you know what? I hadn't even thought of that, Ronan. No, there wasn't, was there? No score sheets, Sean. No score sheets. (laughs) Not happy. Not happy. Okay. (laughs) Always one to end on a low. Sean, do you want to give us your thoughts on Elysium? I do, I do. Okay, this is a game of set collection that also has interesting little combinations to exploit. It's a very easy game to learn but the depth is quickly found for anybody looking for it. I think the designers worked hard to crowbar some theme into it, but in my opinion, they failed. However, what they did succeed in doing is producing a beautifully crafted, vibrant, quick and fast-paced game that not only doesn't outstay its welcome, but has you asking it round for tea the following day. Round for tea? Round for tea. I'll have this game round for tea anytime. That's... That's a nice thought. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like Sean and I are singing from the same hymn sheets to a large degree. This feels like a theme hung on a set of mechanisms. However, an enjoyable set of mechanisms, a solid set of mechanisms, a set of mechanisms that don't just feel like different things have been clunked together, but they all flow together. They all make sense. It's card drafting with something on top. And I'm a big fan of card drafting. I think there's lots of table chatter in the game. I think when you have the players engaged, there are sides of despair. There's laughter. There's cursing each other out. There are threats. There are smiles. It all flows. There's the, oh, I can't believe I've just made that mistake. You can screw yourself up as much as you can screw the other players. Don't get lured into thinking too hard by its appearance. Don't get bogged down. Don't take too long. It reminds me a little bit of Abyss from last year, where some people were saying it took them two, two and a half hours to play a game because they were thinking too hard. Same here with this, and it's about the same weight as Abyss. Once you get into it, despite all the trappings and everything, it's fun. It's screwy. It is thinky. But it's quick. It will be done in an hour if you play it, you know, at the right sort of a pace and you'll have had a good 
fun, even if you are all Greek wizards or something like that. That's Elysium. I think that we both enjoyed it very much. And if it were to win the Kenneth Builder Sciaris, I certainly think it would be a worthy winner. Sean? Yeah, I can't can't disagree with you there, Ronan. Help me bob, I'm bully in the alley. Way, hey, bully in the alley. Help me bob, I'm bully in the alley. Bully down the shimbo now. Hushin' me pawed in an English town. My second game of the episode is a much different beast to my first in Xenoshift. It's Harbour, the 2015 release from Tasty Minstrel Games. Designed by Scott Alms, and he is the designer of Tiny Epic Kingdoms and Defenders, Kings of Air and Steam, and Martian Dice. It plays one to four players with a playtime suggested of about 60 minutes. It is an economic worker placement and trading game. So, this game is set up by placing the market board in the middle of your table, while each person has their own player board, which has one uniform side and one side that offers a unique power for the duration of the game. The player boards have a row of spaces depicting one to five storage crates, and this is where you will place the goods markers depicting one of four goods types. They are wood, livestock, stone, and fish. The space they rest on will show how many of each good that person has. The player boards also represent the first building in each player's tableau. Also, in easy reach of the players will be the building supply, with a certain number of these buildings available to the players, depending on the player count. So on to the mainstay of the game, and how to play. Each player has one meeple, or worker, and this will be moved to one empty building each turn. The only rules being that you must move your worker, and not leave it on a space already occupied, and that you can't place it on a building card that already has another worker. If you use another person's building that they already have, or either they start building or something they've purchased, then that's going to cost you a good to place on that building. So these buildings will allow the worker to perform actions, usually gain or convert goods, or buy buildings. So why are you doing this? Well, you're looking to gather goods to sell at the market and buy buildings. Buildings offer victory points and are the only way to earn these. A player can buy a building when they have enough goods to convert into money using the current market prices. The market works as follows. Each good is worth either 2, 3, 4 or 5 coins depending on where it sits in the market order. So you might have a situation where wood is worth 5 coins and fish is worth 4. Ronan wants to buy a building worth 9 coins and has his wood marker on the 5 storage space and his fish on the 4 spot. Therefore, he can now purchase that 9 coin building. This is very important as you can't sell your goods if the space they are in the market does not match the space that they are on your board. I.e. Ronan would not be able to sell his wood if it was on the 4 space on his player board. So Ronan trades his wood and fish to get a total of 9 coins and takes the building into his tableau and that card is replaced by another from the deck. Then two things happen. Ronan's used good will slide down accordingly, probably to zero, and both wood and fish will come off the market track and rejoin at the back, with livestock and stone moving forward to occupy the higher spots. The game ends after one more round when somebody has purchased their fifth building, including the start one, and the points are counted up on the building with the player holding the most 
declared the victor. There's a few little points of notes. Each building has one or two of the four icons in the game. The icons are coin, which takes a one coin off the total building purchase. These are cumulative. A top hat, which allows you to use other players' building without paying the fee. An anchor symbol, which is used to gain benefits from other anchor buildings. These two are cumulative. And the warehouse. The players keep one shipped good for each warehouse. I.e. Ronan could have chosen to place his fish or his wood token earlier on the number one storage spot rather than the zero. If he had one warehouse. Again, they are cumulative. There's a couple of optional extras included in the game. There's bonus cards that give points for holding a certain amount of one good type at the end of the game. And there's a slightly different market board which offers the chance to sell one of each type of good before they trade. And there we have it. Harbour. It's a, it comes in a tiny little box. It's supposedly a micro game. How did you find it, Ronan? Sean, Harbour is not just the worst game we have ever reviewed for the game pit. It is one of the worst games I have ever played in my many years in this hobby. So you're not dicing around here, you're cutting straight to the bone of this, are you? Should we go through some of your issues with it, Ronan? The whole game is you have a worker, that worker goes to a building. And do you know what? I may as well pick it up, throw it in the air and let it land down. Oh yeah, it goes to that building. Because they're so bland and pointless and useless and of no difference to each other. And I don't care, okay? The basic building you have gives you one each of two different resources. Do any of the buildings do any better than that? Mm, Not in my opinion. Not really? No. (laughs) Not really, Sean. You don't really get much better than that. But you're forced to move your worker, so are you ever going to go to another player's building and give them a good? You might, you might not. You might be sitting at home thinking, oh, good, that sounds expensive. Do you know what? Who knows? No one knows how much goods are worth. Do you know why? Because by the time it comes around to you, the good that was worth five could be worth five or two or four or three or who knows. Because every time someone sells something, it changes price and you can't predict how much it's going to change price. So therefore, you cannot collect certain goods thinking, right, I'm going to collect five fish and I'm going to sell fish for five because fish might be worth two by the time it comes around to you. And you've got no way of predicting it. So what building should I go to? It doesn't matter. Who cares? They're all the same. And the market will be at some (laughs) random level when I get there anyway. And people tell me there are buildings that help you manipulate the market. Uh. So I'll tell you what happens, right? Sean sells on his turn and the market changes. And then Puria sells and then the market changes. And then maybe Jacob doesn't sell. He collects goods. So I use my building to change the market back to how I want it because I've saved up my livestock. So then Sean maybe doesn't buy and then and then Puria doesn't buy. But then Jacob will buy and then the market changes. And then I have to move my dude away. So I'll get two more of some good that may be worth a random amount. And then we'll go around again, and then maybe I'll move my dude back to manipulate the market back to where I want to, but invariably someone would have bought something by that stage, and therefore the market would have changed again, and then all the goods are worth random amounts. You may as well just roll the dice. It's just pointless. It's useless. Why am I going to any building? Why am I collecting any particular good? It doesn't make any sense. Wow. That was... That was, that was epic. The building. Here's a building, right? <laughs> it's still Get going. It's still going. Get a fish. For every single anchor you have, every anchor, Sean, that building doesn't have an anchor on it. 
when I buy my fourth building, the game's going to finish. The most anchors I can ever, ever use on that building is two. What does my basic building do? Gives me two resources. What does that building do? Gives me a maximum. And only after I've bought three of my four buildings, two resources. Right. Whew, that was that was intense. Ryan, I completely concur with you in this game. Now, I think we are in complete agreement. But we've done it before. We've we'll be completely piled on a game. I've been having a little look at reviews and talk and people's thoughts. And this game, bizarrely, and I don't know why, is generally quite well received. Not. By anyone okay, which is that. which is why I'm just going to play Devil's Advocate and just read out a few of the things that people say are good about this game, and I just want your opinion on them. Here we go, here we go. Some people have complained that the market is too chaotic, but I love it. I think the game would be boring without it. Let me state that more clearly. The market is an inspired mechanic, and the one factor that takes the game from good to awesome. Sure, you can't always predict it, but to be adaptive, don't focus on only one type of resource that is currently at the top. Next, it's got a quick setup time. Next. <laughs> <laughs> Next, excellent variety in the player boards and building cards give lots of replayability. The realist economy makes this game a fun puzzle and the different races and fluff on the cards brings you into the world of the game. And lastly, I'm giving Harbour 8 out of 10 because the game hits the right blend of depth and strategy with speed, simple play and ease of transporting. And it has high replayability. This is a great getaway game for newer gamers to the Euros, while at the same time offering experienced Euro fans a neat little game to play when you want to scratch that itch, but don't have a couple of hours to spare. Now, I'm not saying that these people are wrong. Let me just put that out straight. From the I'm not saying they just offer a different opinion to what myself and Ronan offer. So if you are one of these people that I've quoted here, uh, thank you for your quote, and you are more than welcome to your opinion. We just don't agree. In every review we do, we try to have shades, Sean. We try to look at the light and the dark and the colours in between. And we like to vary things. And, and we like to try and find, you know, it, who would like this game? And, and where's the positive? And where's the negative? And, and where's it gone wrong? But with Harbour, there's just a sea of dull grey. Sea of nothing. A flat plane of nothing in your future for the next hour. You had to go and get quotes from other people to find anything positive to say about this game. I did. I really did. I could not. And I, you know what? I did have one thing in my head. I like the art. It reminded me of Belfort, which is a good game. <laughs> That's as good as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> right. The cards, the building cards themselves. How, Given that you can place your worker on any of the buildings in the middle, any of the buildings owned by any other player... And therefore, you can activate their power. Were they easy to read, basically? Was it easy to know what your options were as you played? Not particularly. The symbols on them were worth only for the player. So you had to keep gawping over people's shoulder and looking at their cards, see what they did. But I suppose there's not that many cards that come out. So 
maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, but it is, it's, a, it's an irritance in a game that's already quite irritating. How, how many hues can you think of? <laughs> you can say this is a game of limited hues. How many, how many shades <laughs> do you think you could name of colour in, in, in the broad, wow, you're actually quite narrow spectrum of human vision? Uh, quite a few. <laughs> Why did they choose for their four workers, given they're about the only coloured component in the game, two hues that must be within the same degree of hue? <laughs> same. Are we, to, are we talking Jackman? <laughs> That's awful. I'm going to leave that joke in just because it deserves to be heard. The four... Bloody meeples! Two of them are pretty much the same colour! Yeah. What? It's just a strange choice of colour, and I get that people want to move away from your yellow, blue, green and red, but at least make them distinctive, you know what I mean? Joe, the most interesting thing we can find to talk about about this game is the colour of the meeples, and that's not even a positive. Ronan, you talked about the anchor annoying you. The top hat annoyed me! Every second building that comes out has a top hat. So therefore, of course, everyone's just going to get it so they can use everyone's for free. Around into the game, in nearly every game I've played of this, everyone has a top hat. If everyone was wearing a top hat, that would make this game 500% better. People talk about Euro games as soulless and dull and pointless and mechanical. And if anyone ever wanted to win that argument, do you know what they should do? Bring a copy of Harbour. Right, I'm summing up. It's a lazy design. It's pointless. It's random for a Euro. It's completely random. It's themeless. I don't care. There's a bit of flavour text about some races on the card. You're not doing anything. It's annoying. It's dull. I'm going to try and tone it down slightly from the foaming and frothing beast that has All my anger is directed at you for making me play it. I've had to take out on this poor game. (laughs) So, Harbour. A game that employed the same art style as Belfort, which I've already said is a big favourite of mine, and I am shallow enough to have been swayed by that when choosing the game. In addition, the generally good reviews and the promise of a deeper game in a portable package persuaded me portable package persuaded me to buy this i was package persuaded a portable package persuaded me (laughs) i was very disappointed at what i feel is a collection of mechanisms and not an actual game i do actually think that the market is interesting but it needs to be included in a game that we would actually have more control in the actions leading up to the market change. So I think there is something in that market mechanic, but it just doesn't work in this game. It almost feels to me that the person at the front of the queue, the first person who initiates change, is almost on a procession to victory because the person at the end of the queue, unless something drastic happens, is just always going to get stitched up by people changing the market. So it just doesn't work at all. In No, I don't care people saying you have to think outside the box. No, it doesn't work. It's completely unfair. It's completely random. No, the game just doesn't work. 
it just doesn't come together at all. I'm going to echo Roland, but not quite so vitriolic as as his good self. But it's just not a game I'm going to be look to, looking to play in the future. And I think I've already offloaded my copy. Woohoo! Best part of the review. That is Barber. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the sad thing is, I was really tempted to buy it, and you got there first. Yes! No, you're just, you're just mean. That's the best thing about Harbour. You wasted your money on it, and I didn't. <laughs> and on that bombshell. So for our final game in this episode, we are going to be discussing Space Hulk Death Angel. This is from designer Cory Knizia and publisher Fantasy Flight Games. And Cory Knizia is one of the main, main men at Fantasy Flight Games. And if you don't know, he's the man at least partially behind such things as Imperial Assault, X-Wing, Eldritch Horror, Battlestar Galactica, Rune Wars, Middle-Earth Quest, a long and distinguished list of big releases. This is one of his smaller designs. It's for one to six players. It's from 2010, and it has a listed playtime of around 30 minutes, which I am going to go along with, certainly at the lower player counts, possibly up to 45 minutes if you're going to go with a full five or six players. What sort of a game is it? Well, it's a cooperative game. It's also all about action planning, and there's a hefty dose of combat in there. It is based on the old Space Hulk game, which is up to its fourth edition, I think, from Games Workshop, in which a bunch of space marines go into a Space Hulk that is an abandoned large spaceship, and they have a mission to perform, and the aliens from the Warhammer 40,000 world, the Gene Stealers, are going to work against the space marines and try and prevent them from doing whatever it is they wish to do. Taken that exact theme and turned it into a card game here. How is it played? So, depending upon player count, you set up a deck of locations and it's randomised from a fairly small selection, but according to player counts, there's certain cards for one player, certain cards for four player, etc, etc. Depending upon how many players are playing, you get a number of Space Marine teams. One player gets three, two to three players get two, and four to six players will get one team each, which means you get two Space Marines of the same colour. Each of these teams are unique, and they're represented by a playing card size card. Usually, one of the two Marines will be sort of a standard Marine with standard powers, the same as lots of other people, and one will be a little bit different, and certain actions will give them some kind of bonus. The next thing you do is there's a pile of gene stealers. They're all the same apart from who have a, a different icon on them, which we'll discuss in a second. You shuffle them up, and according to the starting location where you are, you're going to form two piles. One for the left-hand side of the column you're going to form, and one for the right-hand side of the column you're going to form, the formation of marines. And those are called your blip piles, and they basically you're trying to empty the blip piles to be able to travel on through the game. There's an event deck. You shuffle up the event deck, you draw the top card, that tells you how gene stealers, where they come into play to start with, and at the end of each round you're going to draw an event card and go through that, and we'll talk about that when we get to the end of the round. You also then set up the formation, you take all those space marine cards, each card is one space marine, you shuffle them up and you lay them in a column. Top half of the column is going to face left, and the bottom half of the column is going to face right. According to the location you are, you're going to get a couple of pieces of terrain out either side of the column, and that's where gene stealers are going to spawn, as I said before, we're going to spawn gene stealers next to one or two of those pieces of terrain and that's how we're going to begin the game 
Now, each Space Marine team, and you're going to have one or more of them, has three cards. They've got a support card, a move and activate card, and an attack card. Each round, every player for each of the Space Marine teams chooses one of those actions. Everyone chooses them, and then we flip them over. Or you can do it. Talk to each other. You don't have to flip them over. You're going to be playing cooperatively. You're going to have to talk to each other about what you're going to do anyway. We then go through the actions, and they're all numbered. And what happens is support happens first, then move and activate, and then attack for each team. But in the base game, each team will have their support will be numbered from 1 to 6, and then 7 to 12, etc., and onwards. So everyone does their support actions first. So what are they? Well, both Marines are going to do the one action you've chosen. With support, you get something called a support token, and you place it on any Marine in the formation. That support token is basically a dice reroll when it comes to combat, and again, we'll discuss that in two seconds. The next thing is move and activate. This is what allows you to move your Space Marines up and down your column, hopefully for some sort of tactical benefit. Change their facing. As I said, ones at the top start facing left, ones at the bottom start facing right. And the aliens will come out on those sides, but the aliens are going to move towards the end of the round. And sometimes Space Marines can have aliens behind them, or you might change your facing because you anticipate aliens might come out on the different side. So you can change them facing left to right as you wish using move and activate. And the activate parties, I mentioned there are terrain locations which go either side of the column. Some of those have got activate powers which will allow you to do certain things, kill aliens, collect some kind of bonus, get an artifact, whatever they might be, and that will be scenario dependent. The last one is attack. Now if a space marine is facing one or more gene stealers they roll the dice it's a custom dice it's got zero one two three four five on there and on the one two and three there are a skull basically if you roll a one two or three with that skull you're going to kill one gene stealer that each marine is facing like i say both marines if they're still alive in your formation will be able to attack and some of the marines have got special powers which give them special attacks and that's generally what i was talking about earlier when i said about there being unique marines some of them are basically are much better at attacking the next thing that happens in the round is any gene stealers which are still alive are going to attack the marine they're adjacent to doesn't matter whether they're facing them or not and what the defending marine must do is roll higher on that dice of zero to five than the number of gene stealers attacking it if there are two gene stealers adjacent to a marine they must roll three or more on that dice otherwise they get hit and for every marine one hit means death. I mentioned those support tokens earlier. If the Marine has a support token on them, when they attack or when they defend, they may spend a support token to re-roll. And that's very important to mitigate the luck of the roll of the dice. One hit kills. It's pretty harsh. Okay. Last thing you do in a round is you do the event card. The event card is going to give you an event. Something good or bad is going to happen to your team. Then it tells you where you're going to spawn some gene stealers. The setup card for the number of players will tell you how many, and the terrain's got different colours on it. It just gives you a terrain code and tells you that's how many you spawn at that area. And the gene stealers will come out and they'll form formations. So you can get three, four, five, six, seven gene stealers, which if you can only kill one at a time, you can tell it's going to make the game very difficult, which is where, again, those special powers come into play. And then, I said there's an icon on each of the gene stealers. It's just a little thing. It's a tail or a tooth or a skull. There's an icon on the event card, and every swarm of gene stealers, every set of gene stealers that has that icon in it somewhere is going to move, which adds some unpredictability to the game and stops the gene stealers from being predictable and sitting down and clogging the area up. Next round, you're going to choose actions again for each of the Space Marine teams in the game. However, you cannot choose the action that was used last round. So you can never do the same action consecutively on rounds. What are you trying to do? Well, you're trying to get there being zero cards in either of those blip piles of gene stealers where they spawn from 
on either side of the column. Once one of those blip piles is empty, you travel to the next location. And you're going to want to continue doing this through a number of locations based on number of players until you get to the final location, which will tell you what your win condition is, whether it's to do something in particular, defeat a big bad boss, defeat all the GCs who are attacking you, whatever it may be, it will tell you how to win. And you just have to have at least one Space Marine survive to gain that win condition to win this cooperative game. It's Space Hulk, Death Angel, Sean. I am going to start by talking about something that's always close to my heart. It's usually the point I start, and it's the look and the feel of the game. I knew this is where you were going. I know, I know, I know. I have issues with the look of the game, because I feel that the soldiers, some of them meld into each other. They, they're not distinctive. There's a two shades of yellow if you get the expansions. There's two shades of sort of grey and black and they are almost the same. The blues are almost the same. So for me they didn't they didn't pop. Not a big issue. But comparing the artwork on the soldiers, which is real space hulk, Warhammer looks great. And then the art on the aliens. The aliens were really disappointing. They just look cartoony and bland and they're all the same i was disappointed by the look of the game ronan it's unusual for fancy flight games that the components wouldn't pop but it is a cheap game and it is a small box game and it's clearly they weren't going for massive production values here i don't mind the look of the game but again it's, it's usually less important to me than it is to you I don't think the terrain cards look that great. I think the Space Marines, especially with expansions. Now, I did mention earlier, there are many expansions for the game, which can add different Marines, different aliens, different locations. And they're really good. They're, they're nice to have. But they really bring some of the Space Marines very close to each other in colour. And it's very difficult to differentiate between them. That's definitely an issue. There needs to be bigger symbols or something to tell you, you know, these are different to each other. And in fact, there's some colours that you can barely play with each other because they're so similar. Overall, am I wowed by the components? Do I think it looks great? No, I don't think it looks great. Do I think it looks bad? No, I don't think it looks bad. I think it's okay. I don't think it looks bad to say. I just think I was a bit disappointed. I was expecting more. But what it does do is it doesn't detract from this theme that you get in the game. And I'm going to go into the theme later because I want to lead Ronan into something that's close to his heart. A good rule book. And this one's got a fantastic rule book, hasn't it, Ronan? I'm unable to comment on good rule books while reviewing Space Hulk Death Angel. I, I, I'm contractually <laughs> obliged not to. Oh, my goody, goody, Gideon Lord. This has to be in the Hall of Infamy for bad rule books. I have no doubt that a huge number of players have been put off playing Space Hulk Death Angel because I don't think it's been a huge hit. And I've actually seen people struggling to learn it from the rulebook because that rulebook is absolutely terrible. It's unbelievably bad. It's obtuse. It does the opposite of bringing clarity. It's just, you see, they're going, what? I don't understand. I, this is the worst of the worst of the bad fancy flight rulebooks. Here is a tip to... Anyone out there, if you've got Space Hulk Death Angel and you don't play it because you hate the rulebook, if you're thinking about getting it, if it somehow appears in your Christmas stocking, rip up the rulebook, go to Board Game Geek, get the Death Head Summary. So it's called Death Head, the guy. He does summary rules of games. He does two pages on the rules and 
every single rule is in there. And the game is 3,000% easier to learn from that two-page summary than it is from the travesty of a rulebook. And to be honest, if you're learning any game and it's a death head summary, download it because that guy's amazing. And also, it's not actually an easy game to learn. There's a lot going on for a simple card game, or on the surface you think it's going to be a simple card game. There's a very particular setup. There's a very particular things that happen in the game. And there's a lot going on with just this deck of cards. So to I, have a... I absolutely disagree. You really? Oh, this is a simple game. I think it's made, I think the rule that makes it seem complicated. I, th- I thought to understand the way the game plays and what's coming out next and how things are working, you really have to buy into the theme, which is which is my big plus in this game. I think that it's dripping with theme. And we played a game of this and I own it and I took it to work because you can play it solo. And I thought I'd remembered everything you did, but I didn't. <laughs> I, didn't not, I had to download the guide that you said and relearn it again because it, it's just didn't sit with me it just didn't maybe i wasn't really delving into the theme or watching what you were doing or relying on you too much but it just didn't flow in my mind it didn't sit well with me the the way things worked and that might be completely just me probably is usually is but yeah there was something that didn't click once you learn the rules though from the summary and you played it by yourself once did you get it going forward yeah, I did, and but I think what I definitely did was I tied it into the theme. Yeah, I get that's your point. That yeah, look, I think that the whole sort of raison d'etre of the game was to turn Space Hulk into a thirty-minute card game. Okay, so Space Hulk has got the whole brooding, threatening. You're going into this situation. You don't know where the threat's coming from. You don't know when you're going to get overwhelmed. It's like one of those '80s action films. You're going to lose members of the party. It's going to happen. Can you mitigate those losses enough to get the mission done? Have they managed to do that? Have they managed to capture at least the theme? 100% yes. This is the reason I've come back to the game and that I enjoyed it so thoroughly and I've given away my thoughts on the game is that it's just absolutely smothered in theme and you've only got two soldiers if you're playing in a larger group number and you, you want to look after those, those poor little fellas, they've only got one hit point. They're going to go and you're really trying to look after them. You're trying to defend your comrades. You feel like you're being swarmed all over. You do you almost got this claustrophobic feel playing it. And I think it's absolutely themed perfectly. Right. And I've got a question for you moving away from all the sort of group side of it and working together and the cooperative side, you've only got three choices per round. You're only going to play one of three cards. Yeah. You can turn your soldier around to face another way. And in fact, after the first round, one of two cards. Well, true. Yeah. You've only got two choices and do you move your soldier? So three choices per round. So does this game give you enough choice in each round to actually make a difference see i think that where that comes in is you're not choosing as i'm just leading these two marines or i'm leading this couple of groups you're choosing as part of a bigger team what can i do this round to help our team and what does it set up for the next round and even the next round after that how do i work as a cog in this mechanism and i think that's where the choices come from you have to balance as a team, what you're doing. It's not just what am I doing? What's best for me this round? It might be best, strictly speaking, I'm looking at one round, my team, to attack right now. But you know what? 
Maybe the other two guys are attacking, which means we're going to have no attacks next round, which will leave us wide open. So I have to think about that and say, well, okay, I don't really want to support this round, but I will support because it's the best action within the context of the decisions made by the other players. And that's where I think the decisions come in. It's not, if you're thinking, I'm going to do one of two things, probably people are listening to this going, well, what? that sounds awful. It's so limited, but it's not how they work individually, it's how they then work with the other actions, which turns it into an interesting decision. Yeah, I couldn't have put that better, mate. Absolutely that. If you imagine that you are a column of troops moving around in this Space Hulk through its sort of corridors and steam popping out, imagine the alien films. And every decision that you're going to make, it really does affect the people either side of you, the people at the front of the column, the people at the back of the column. You've got to protect two one two goes ahead because those aliens, if they advance, they're going to prey on the weaker members and... You've really, yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got to work as a team. You've got to talk about things, and you've got to talk about things that are not only happening now, but that could happen in one or two turns later. Are you facing the right way? Is that is the person who's going to be attacked next if the aliens move onwards? Is he facing the right way? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It, there is a lot more to think about than just on the surface of it, those two or three choices. I think the seeming simplicity of the game and what I think is light rules overhead, and the fact there's dice involved, leads people to play it very casually. And they just go, well, you know, it's okay, it doesn't really matter, it's obvious, I'll attack, I'll support, I'll attack, I'll support. Those people are losing the game a lot. Those are the people that come on and they say, I've played it half a dozen times, I've never got close to winning. And I have to just say, if you're not planning ahead, if you're not making a plan amongst your team, if you're not mitigating using support tokens, then yeah, you will lose this game. This game hates you. Those gene stealers want to eat your liver and they will do unless you play it well. It is not the sort of co-op, even though there's a dice involved and simple choices, that you can just sort of go along with and see what happens. If you try and do that, the game will crush you. It's a hard old game, Bernan. It is a hard, tough game, game. But I don't think I'd want it any other way. As I said, I want that feeling of of claustrophobia and just being surrounded on all sides by these aliens. And I might be this super soldier laden with weaponry. You are a super soldier. (laughs) Laden with weaponry, but I'm up against it. I'm proper up against it. And it's going to be touch and go whether we survive this. I've talked before about sort of positive experiences during games where you're creating something and negative ones where you're just fighting against the inevitable and how long will you last to get there? Now, with this, this is where I think the theme sells it for me. It is a game of diminishing numbers. You will have Space Marines die. Try and make sure it's sort of the bog standard ones, not the ones with special powers. You are constantly failing. It feels like a suicide mission. Can you stave off defeat for long enough? The theme makes that work. The difficulty makes that work. Even just travelling to the next location feels like a triumph because you can die in the first location. Let's not get this wrong. If you play badly, you will die before you go anywhere and it's perfectly possible to happen. Well, like I did on my very first go, just threw away a troop. <laughs> Silly choice. I um I I didn't want to be the alpha player, <laughs> so 
<laughs> let's just roll with that, shall we? To be in fairness, and that's what I say. See, but you kind of looked here and you went, "Oh God, I shouldn't have done that, should I?" And then I actually saw you on our first game together click in then and go it, that you had that moment. I think of, "Oh, hold on, there, there's more to this than I thought there was." Oh, absolutely, and that's that's where it came from. That's my initial thought was, but I've only got three cards to choose from and that's going to go down <laughs> next turn so yeah i'm not i'm not buying this one road and yeah whatever fling that over there that troop's dead oh death can be a harsh oh. teacher <laughs> we could i could have done that better yeah <laughs> and it was one of the goodies as well for one of my proper hard so-and-sos yeah <laughs> we, we didn't win that game sure we got to the last round yeah, we didn't win though, did no, we? No, we didn't. Even close. It was Nicholas Swarm of like nine gene stealers. It was like nine on one side and another five or six on the other side. Hoovering <laughs> up the remaining <laughs> space marine. Dink, dink. That, that didn't go great. <laughs> okay. Now, this is kind of a funny question for a card game that lasts half an hour. How epic does it feel? It's a funny old question. I think when you you slap that Space Hulk theme into it, I have to reiterate what I've already said, to be honest. It does fit. It feels really epic. It feels like you are up against it. You are battling off these aliens. You are fighting the fight of the righteous and that it's probably going to end badly, but there's just that little glint of light at the end of the tunnel that maybe you just might make it through. It's almost like those the computer games we used to play as kids when the game is just so, so tough, that, but it's so good that you keep on going, keep on going until you finally finish, you finally clock it. And yeah, it's a, a proper eureka moment. I clocked that game, bro. I clocked it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and the last question for me is, the die roll is in there. We haven't talked about it too much. The drama off the die roll. Do they do it right? Because this is a game with insta-death on your characters. It seems like there's going to be a lot of luck, I think, looking from the outside. How do you feel about the dice rolling in there? Well, the dice rolling can be manipulated by, as you said, the, the, most, the stronger characters usually. They can do something that makes the dice more powerful or less potent for the aliens coming in. I think also that you're quite reliant on the card draws. If you don't want a certain swarm to move because it's going to pick off somebody in the next turn, then that card draw, is you're completely reliant on it. But, yeah, because you can manipulate these things and you can plan for these things to happen, then yeah, you can you can mitigate against them. So it's not as complete dumb luck as it again first appears. There is a few things you can do, but at the end of the day, it's a half an hour game, and in a situation I would imagine like that, you're going to be relying on some luck. So why not have a bit of dice rolling in there? I think that from last question, this one, it's part of what creates the epic feel is the fact that it's a game that creates stories. And part of the dice rolling creates stories. And in terms of special powers, my favourite is the guy. He can kill three gene stealers, which is awesome. Then you have to roll a dice. And if you roll a zero, he dies. There's no chance of rolling a zero, right? Or, Not with a support token on him. Or every time in your ter- in your case. <laughs> or what about my guy who... Sorry, I've got a support token. Oh. <laughs> or what about my guy who uh, doesn't roll the skulls, but rolls the number on the dice and can kill that un- number of uh, aliens? How many That's times? brilliant. Yeah, if you don't roll a if zero roll or a one, one <laughs> every time. <laughs> he just did that exactly the same as if he hadn't done that. Yeah. 
Again. Again. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you remember these characters, though. You start to remember what their certain powers are. Some of them are better at defence if they've played support this turn, for example. So you pluck them in there. Some of them have got, like, psychic powers. So if they attack, the swarm won't attack them back. So you manipulate to move them next to that huge swarm so that that huge swarm can't attack them. And then you have other marines either side of them trying to knock numbers out of the swarm to get it back down to manageable level and suddenly what looked impossible through clever combination of powers and clever action selection and planning ahead back down to something that now do you know we've mitigated that now we're in a position to get back going again and that's why i like it so much because i really think it rewards clever play before we sum up i don't like solo gaming in general even games that set themselves up as solo games, I don't tend to play. I very, very rarely played a solo game. This somehow, it actually lends itself to solo game. It's, it's good playing in a team and getting other people's input, but it does work solo for me. How do you feel on that? I agree with you, actually. I will play the odd solo game. I always think I'm going to play it more than I ever do. But Death Angel is one that I have come back to. I've played it a lot with people who don't play many games like my brother i've played it with yourself i've played it at london on board i've played it solo and and it's worked in all situations so it definitely does lend that you can look for different combinations amongst the space marines you can look to explore at the event deck you're only going to pull a few of those out really in a game and it's pretty deep so and they are situational as well. And I always love a game whereby different cards do different things depending upon what the situation is. This gives you a lot of variety there in play. So, again, for such a seemingly simple system, it's flexible, it's variable, it's replayable, it's adaptable. It, it really is a clever design. And, yeah, solo play, it's one of the few games I would consider for solo play. So, Sean, I think we've been pretty positive all the way through apart from that rule book why don't you give us your final thoughts on space hulk death angel okay so this is a solid highly thematic delve into the warhammer stroke space hulk world and a good game is awaiting those brave enough to fight through the awful rule book and what I thought, thought was a generally steep learning curve. Obviously, Bronan has a different opinion. This game is hard. It's very hard. But I really wouldn't want it to be easy. I think you are supposed to feel this weight of the avalanche of aliens coming at you. And because of the charm of this game, I just wanted to play it over and over until I finally won. And then beyond that, I think... The choices in themselves are limited, but I feel that good and clever cooperative play will be rewarded in this game. And it's just a very strong and very underrated game. And I would, I'd recommend that Space Hulk Death Angel. Is there a better 30-minute cooperative game out there than Space Hulk Death Angel? I would say possibly the Forbidden Games. I know they're not everyone's cup of tea. Forbidden Desert's probably a bit longer than this game. Forbidden Island is probably a lot lighter than this game. It fits in a niche that I'm not sure it's got too many strong competitors in. It does feel grim. It does feel tough. It does feel like you're doomed. It does feel like it kicks you in the teeth sometimes. That's part of the package. I like it because I think it does it right. I think it tells a story. I think it gives you hope and then crushes it and then gives you that hope back again. It requires thought. 
It requires teamwork, and even as Sean said, playing solo, it requires you to get combinations between your Space Marine teams that will work, and to think cleverly, and to think outside the box and think ahead. And I love that about it for such a simple, simple rule set. In my opinion, Space Hulk Death Angel is a success on all fronts. Give it a go. Okay, so there we have it. We've been fairly positive about most of our games discussed on this mm. episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, apologies to anyone who likes Harbour. But anyway, three to go. play and one to avoid. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the game pit. Are you actually going to fit me with a muzzle for next time, Sean? Is that true? I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to tranquilize you. Actually, that'll probably make you worse. You just sound like. <laughs> Like you're in a drunken rampage. Next time out, we are going to do a long episode about short games. We've got lots of our friends and contributors coming into the game pit telling us about their favourite and not-so-favourite short games. And Sean and I are going to go over a whole bunch of games of a shorter play length. We find with these picking over the Bones episodes, we generally tend to go for longer games and lots of games that we play slip under the radar, so it's our chance to cover lots of those. I hope that sounds interesting to you. I hope you join us. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you're not emotionally invested in Harbour, and I'm sorry if I created any offence. I think I was having a bad day. Sean, how can everyone get hold of us? First of all, you should be sorry. You were awful. Anyway, you can get hold of us by emailing us at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at gamepitpodcast. We are on Facebook. Come and find our page there. You can also see us in Board Game Geek. We have a, a little guild there where we have discussions and chats with various people on various subjects. And we can be found on 2d6.org along with visual audio and written goodness. And lastly, but not least, we are very proud members, as always, of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for the very best in gaming podcasts. Music by E. Aaron and production by G. Music